Welcome to PD Heart, Pediatric Cardiology Today. My name is Dr. Robert Pass, and I'm the host of this podcast. I am professor of pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai here in New York City. Thank you for joining me for this 229th episode of the podcast. I hope all enjoyed last week's episode on the concept of the family meeting and how we can improve them. We spoke with Dr. Jennifer Walter of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia about this topic. For those of you interested in this topic, I'd recommend you take a listen to last week's episode, 228. As I say most weeks, if you'd like to reach out to me, it's easy to remember my email. It's pdhart at gmail.com. I wanted to mention, for those of you who may not know, that almost every week I post on YouTube lectures on electrophysiology for general pediatric cardiologists and cardiology fellows. For those of you interested, go to YouTube and put my name, Robert Pass, in, and you'll find the lectures. They're very basic, but they review topics that I think are important for all cardiologists and are particularly useful for board preparation. Let's move on to the article this week. We'll be going into the world of interventional cardiology. We'll be reviewing a research letter, which is entitled, Complete Left Bundle Branch Block After Transcatheter Closure of Perimembranous Ventricular Septal Defect Using Amplats or Duct Occluder 2. The first author of this work is Changqing Tang, and the senior author, Chuan Wang. And this work comes to us from West China Second University Hospital in Sichuan University, Sichuan, China. Accompanying this work is an editorial comment entitled, What is Blocking Transcatheter Ventricular Septal Defect Closure? The first author of this editorial comment is Shabana Shahanavaz, and the senior author of it, Sasha Apatowski, and the authors come to us from Cincinnati Children's Hospital. When we're done reviewing this paper, Dr. Shabana Shahanavaz has kindly agreed to speak with us about it. Therefore, let's move straight on to the article, the editorial, and then a conversation with one of the editorialists. This week's work focuses on interventional cardiology and is a research letter coming from China on their outcomes of perimembranous VSD closure in the cath lab using the very soft Amplatz or duct occluder 2 which you'll recall was approved about 10 years ago for closure of small to moderate-sized PDAs. The device is made of a soft, fabric-free nitinol mesh and has low-profile discs, and in general, it's much softer or flimsier than the ADO-1 or any of the muscular VSD or even ASD devices. This is largely due to differences in the nitinol mesh as well as the absence of fabric in the discs. There have been some reports of its use for VSD closure, and the reason that this device has been considered for this indication is the hope that its softer discs and less aggressive clamping on the septum from these discs may result in less pressure or stress on the septum and the very close conduction system, potentially reducing or avoiding heart block incidences, which have been seen in up to 20% of patients who had VSDs of this nature closed with the now no longer available Amplatz or perimembranous VSD device. I think it's important to remember and understand that it was the development of heart block that largely was the reason that the initial Amplatzer device for this indication was not made available in the U.S. and also not pursued. However, there's a growing literature on perimembranous VSD closure in China, with some very large studies showing excellent safety and efficacy. But despite these, this approach is not really caught on in the West. The concern for the development of heart block or left bundle branch block has been real, and it is with this background that the authors of this research letter from a large single center in China report on their outcomes of this ADO2 device for VSD closure, with particular reference to the incidence of post-procedural conduction abnormalities or complications. 
The authors described 276 children who underwent successful transcatheter closure of perimembranous VSDs with the ADO2 device in a four-year period from January 2016 till April of 2020. The indications for closure were somewhat different from our usual, with the following indications listed. 51 had a left ventricular end diastolic dimension over two Z-scores. 28 had recurrent lower respiratory infections. 12 were closed for pulmonary hypertension. 13 for poor growth. 4 with poor cardiac function. And finally, the largest group, 128 for what the authors refer to as, quote, patient preference or social pressure. It's important to remember that 10 children in this entire cohort had an LV end diastolic dimension Z-score over 3. In a follow-up of 1 to 48 months, there was loss to follow-up in 32 patients, and these were excluded in the follow-up analysis. So 88%, or 244, of the 276 initial patients were followed. Of the entire 244, 87, or 36%, had a post-procedural arrhythmia, including complete left bundle branch block in 3%, or 6 patients, incomplete right bundle branch block in 11%, complete right bundle branch block in 3 left anterior hemiblock in 2%, and what the authors refer to as junctional escape rhythm in nearly 6%, and junctional escape rhythm with a right bundle branch block in one patient. There was a ventricular escape rhythm seen in two patients, I'm unclear what that is, first degree AV block in two patients, or nearly 1%, second degree AV block in one patient, and what the authors refer to as, quote, other impulse formation disorders in 14 or nearly 6% of patients. The investigators state that most of the arrhythmias that they saw resolved, but there was a persistence of arrhythmia in about 6%. They also demonstrated that the mean and median QRS duration did not change pre- and post-procedure. And what happened to the eight patients who had complete left bundle branch block? Well, four developed this during the procedure, and two had it happen in the post-operative period, and they were given steroids with four of six having resolution. The other two cases of complete left bundle branch block had resolution at one month and nine months later. However, there were two more complete left bundle branch blocks seen at late follow-up, one at six months and one at 19 months post-procedure, and these patients developed LV dyssynchrony with LV dysfunction. The authors summarized their findings to suggest that the overall incidence of arrhythmias was high at about 36%, but the vast majority were transient and, importantly, there was no complete heart block seen. Second, they mentioned that complete left bundle branch block can occur late after this procedure, meaning that follow-up of these patients is important. Third, they mentioned that this finding of complete left bundle branch block was associated with dysfunction due to dyssynchrony. And finally, they reported that the only risk factor for the development of complete left bundle branch block in this study was a longer procedural time, perhaps reflecting more crosses of the VSD and time for the sheaths to bang into vital conduction structures. The authors conclude by suggesting that in general this worked well and should be considered for those with hemodynamically important lesions, but that maybe for asymptomatic kids with very small perimembranous VSDs, regular follow-up, and presumably no VSD closure, might, quote, be a better choice because higher incidences of post-procedural conduction abnormalities and the possibility of sustained complete left bundle branch were observed. Accompanying this work was an editorial letter from the team at Cincinnati Children's Hospital entitled, What is Blocking Transcatheter VSD Closure? 
The authors begin by reviewing the fact that VSDs are the most common congenital heart defect, with an incidence of about 3 per 1,000 live births. And they remind us how perimembranous VSDs account for 80% of the VSDs involving the membranous septum. And they also remind us about the very complex anatomy of the VSD in this region, near to the septal leaflet of the tricuspid valve, the aortic valve, and of course the bundle of hiss and bundle branches, which are in the inferior-posterior margins of the defect. They review some of the history of VSD closure, and how important it is to understand the VSD anatomy if contemplating closure, and how too small of a device can embolize, but too large can affect the adjacent structures with the valves and conduction system clearly being those most important critical structures. They then remind us of the history of the perimembranous Amplatzer VSD occluder, which initially seemed great, but the incidence of complete AV block was reported between 5 and 20 percent, and those values were considered too high and so it was never really commercially available. The authors reference a present study of the newer Amplatzer perimembranous VSD occluder, and also attempts largely outside the U.S. to use other devices like the AD01 or Vascular Plug 2 for VSD closure. They then re-emphasize the potential benefits of the AD02 devices described in this work, such as its smaller delivery catheter, the softer delivery wire and catheter, and the lack of an aggressive clamp force of the discs. They review the data from the research letter we've just reviewed. And the authors feel that this report is a bit sparse on technique and understanding the risk factors for left bundle branch block. And they speak of a prior work by the same group that showed a larger device or sheath delivery system being associated with heart block. They then explain that a large number of the patients in this work who got a VSD closure did not meet conventional U.S. indications for VSD closure based on QPQS or LV volumes, and they wonder aloud if the risks associated with this procedure were equal to the benefit in those patients. They are encouraged by the few cases of heart block and review other reports of perimembranous VSD closure from China showing 1% or lower rates, and they review how this compares favorably with outcomes from surgery. They then get to the meat of the editorial, basically asking the question of why, if this procedure was so excellent in this center, and if the outcomes have been so safe and effective, why are we not offering this in the United States, except very rarely? The authors suggest that one reason for the extreme difference may first be the difference in indications. Of the 276 patients in this work, only about 51 had LV dilation, and the vast majority had it done for something called patient preference or social pressure. And the authors aptly note, and I quote, We cannot imagine closing a VSD in the U.S. for this reason. The authors then review U.S. data on this and basically tell us what most of us already know, which is that the numbers of patients having perimembranous VSDs closed in this one hospital in China in a transcatheter manner exceeds the entire U.S. transcatheter experience in the same time period. Of course, in our country, this sort of VSD is closed surgically nearly 100% of the time with excellent results. And the authors explain how hard it is to extrapolate the data from China to us when so many had defects closed that we would never close due to their small size. But they state, and I quote, It's increasingly believable that the risks of transcatheter closure are likely to be about the same or lower than for surgery in many scenarios. The authors then again question why transcatheter closure has not been more commonly adopted in the U.S. or most of Europe. They wonder what would be required to shift views, and they ask, quote, When should data on a catheter procedure from one region be accepted to apply to others, and when are local data necessary? 
And they conclude, These questions are remarkable because they relate less to empiric data and science than to history, sociology, and epistemology. Nevertheless, these considerations will be fundamental to achieving our shared goal, reconciling the widely divergent clinical care provided in different geographic regions to identify the safest and most effective approach to perimembranous VSD closure. Well, I think this is certainly a tricky question and issue. On the one hand, the reports from China suggest that this procedure is quite safe and very rarely associated with serious long-term complications of significance, or at least they are similar in incidence to surgery. One could even suggest that we in the U.S. are in some fashion being prejudicial in our view that we don't trust these data. I do believe it's important to remember some of the history of this procedure. I was there when the initial Amplatzer VSD trial was performed, and I even participated in that trial. At that time, studies in Asia had already been reported with outstanding results and virtually no serious complications reported, and that was most certainly not the case in the West. Remember that the initial operators in that Amplatzer trial in the United States and in Canada were amongst the best catheterizers in the entire Western world, and yet the risks for various forms of heart block were in the range of about 20%. I remember around the time of that trial that Lee Benson's group in Canada reported an over 20% incidence of heart block, and that number was repeated in the United States. I myself follow a patient who developed Mobitz 2 block following device implantation during that trial, and just two weeks ago, I changed out his pacemaker generator. Of course, the devices reported today are different and have qualities that would be assumed to be associated with lower rates of problems. However, if I were to guess a reason as to why the Western pediatric cardiologists have been somewhat slow to adopt this approach, I would say it was the stark difference of outcomes and complications between the reports from China in the early 2000s and our own experience in the hands of the finest Western interventionalists in Canada and the U.S., This, of course, does not mean that things haven't changed, but I do well recall the surprise of those findings, and I suspect that this is possibly informing these choices. Clearly, if we're to proceed with this more regularly, we'll need a well-designed clinical trial, as the initial membranous VSD Amplatzer trial was performed, in order to better understand the issues of this procedure in patients that we believe have a true indication for VSD closure. At this point, I think we should move on to our conversation with Dr. Shahanavaz. Joining us now to discuss this week's work is Dr. Shabana Shahanavaz. Dr. Shahanavaz is the director of the Cardiac Catheterization Laboratory at the Heart Institute at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital. She's a graduate of Kasturba Medical College in Karnataka, India, and completed her residency in Brooklyn, New York, followed by fellowship at the University of California in San Francisco and interventional fellowship at New York Presbyterian Hospital. She is an acknowledged leader in the world in cardiac catheterization, and it is indeed a great honor and pleasure to welcome her to the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Shahanavaz. I'm here now with Shabana Shahanavaz. Uh, Dr. Shahanavaz, great pleasure to have you join us this week on the podcast to discuss this somewhat uh, controversial topic. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. Nice to see you, too. For those in the audience, Dr. Shahanavaz reminded me that she did a rotation as a resident with us back at New York Presbyterian a million years ago, and uh, so I was very excited to have the opportunity to invite her this week on the podcast. You know, uh, Shabana, in your editorial, you referenced a newer Amplatzer perimembranous VSD closure study 
I don't know a lot about that trial. Is that an ongoing trial? And do you know where that trial stands in terms of how close it is to being completed? Are there any new trials planned in the U.S. Uh, with this ADO2 device that your editorial discussed or any other VSD device closure device? Oh, yeah, excellent question. So the newer device, uh, the trial actually has uh, since been stopped within the United States, uh, but still outside the United States, there have been some enrollment. I think the challenge with enrollment has been the multiple newer devices from very many companies that have then uh, come into the market, uh, which is why it's not been a sturdy enrollment within the trial itself. Uh, as of other trials in the United States, unfortunately, as of this time, there have been no plans with that, uh, and that's been majorly with concerns of lack of uh, enrollment for a device type of VSD closure. I see. Now, when you say uh, the yeah. am, the VSD trial has ended, are you referring to the old one from 10 years ago or a more recent one? A more recent one, which uh, enrolled in 2011-2012, uh, did uh, have some uh, participants in Minneapolis um, with uh, Dr. Amplatzer. Excuse me. So uh, you're, you're referring then to uh, a follow-up study from the original uh, U.S. trial of the initial Amplatzer perimembranous VSD closure. And what happened with that follow-up trial that Dr. Amplatzer ran? Was there not enough enrollment? Was, did they start seeing heart block like the prior trial? Uh, what what happened at that time? Actually, the data, the one-year results were very promising without a whole lot of heart block. There was some initial TR majority of those results. Um, I think only two residual shunts at the end of the study at one year. Um, unfortunately, I think a majority of the participation lacked uh, because of non-enrollment within the United States groups and then uh, other devices that are very available outside of the United States as well as an international trial. I see. Well, uh, Shabana, in my discussion of this topic prior to the conversation you and I are having, which you have not yet heard, of course, because the podcast hasn't come out, I comment on how during the initial perimembranous VSD trial in the early 2000s, there was a very substantial disparity in outcomes between the trial and those that had been reported in China uh, before and during that time. I wondered if that might be why we don't yet fully accept some of these outstanding results that we read here in this week's uh, research letter and from other investigators in China and elsewhere. Do you have any thoughts on why it is uh, that in this regard we've been so slow to accept and adopt this approach that seems to have nearly perfect results in the Chinese data? Yeah, I think that's one of the things I comment about uh, my discussion as the disparity of VSD closures within the United States and uh, the Chinese data. And part of, I think, the concern is uh, the outcome of the initial trial was concerning enough to both the interventionists and then the referring cardiologists as well, with uh, surgical results being uh, much better uh, with regards to that. Uh, in addition, I think, uh, with improving surgical outcomes and not newer devices being explored within the United States and interventionists moving away from the procedure uh, that has impacted you know, further enrollment or our trial 
uh, of the tribe's capital, USD. I see. You know, the Chinese group clearly closed an awful lot of defects that we would not traditionally close in the United States. Uh, some of the indications were almost, to me, humorous. Could you summarize for us what you believe are, are the indications for closure of a perimembranous VST at the present time? Uh, interesting question. Although it's not supposed to be controversial, I think there's still controversy about this. I think uh, even within the last two decades, so there's certainly a bias within institutions of patients earlier on in the neonatal and the childhood period uh, with LV dilation, with the Z-score that's greater than three, uh, that end up coming uh, to the surgical OR for VSD closure. Now, there's a second subset of this uh, patients in the adolescent group that don't meet the volumetric criteria for VSD closure, but I have concerns with aortic valve prolapse uh, as this jet progresses. And then finally, there's an adult population that we see where hypertension-induced volume overload and then meets indication of, you know, causes referral for VSD closure. So we see these three separate subgroups uh, as age progresses for very different reasons. I see. Well, uh, by those criteria, only a very small percentage of patients in that Chinese group uh, would have actually gone to VSD closure, don't you think? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the concerns with adopting that technique uh, of, you know, transcatheter VSD closure. Uh, the question of not knowing anatomically if those VSDs were large enough to A, in the United States to be closed out, plus uh, B, uh, have not had any ventricular cephalanism there to uh, place the device and not cause any impact on the crest of the septum or the aortic valve itself. So I think uh, having a little more data in terms of the anatomical uh, changes within uh, or differences between these VSDs might have helped us adopt that technically. Yeah. Well, uh, for those in the audience, Dr. Shahanavaz was nice enough to speak with us still during the regular workday, though almost at the end, although I'm wondering if she has another case even after this. But my last question uh, is sort of a more theoretical one, which is, why do you think that local data is important when considering adoption of a new device or approach in medicine? Is is this the case that it is, it's important, or is it important for certain types of therapies, do you think? No, I think it is important only for certain types of therapies. I think we have been very easy to adopt when uh, there's no questions about anatomical variations. Uh, but I think the VSDs itself, given that the indications that we use are very different, uh, anatomical criteria for transcatheter versus surgical closure is very different, has made it hard for us to accept uh, the results from the Chinese and then means that uh, in our I see. Well, Dr. Shahanavas, thank you very much for joining us this week. Very much enjoyed your editorial with your co-editorialists. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope you all enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Shahanavas as much as I did. She explained to us a little bit about the perimembranous VSD Amplatzer trial that followed the one I described earlier, as well as why it was not successful in enrolling patients. She also offered us a number of thoughts regarding why it might be that we're not entirely accepting of these Chinese results 
with some comments about how the indications for these VSDs were so different in many than our typical approach that in a very real sense, it's not clear how we should consider these results in regards to patients that we would consider closing in the West. Off air, she and I both commented on the fact that given that we would likely on average close larger defects in the West, the risks for heart block or new tricuspid regurgitation might be greater and this might meaningfully impact the outcomes of such a trial. Clearly, the optimal device and approach are not yet known, but I do think that this work and the editorial have given us a bit to think about in this regard. I'd once again like to thank Dr. Shahanavaz for appearing this week on the podcast. To conclude this 229th episode of PD Heart Pediatric Cardiology Today, we hear the famous Dvorak opera aria, The Song to the Moon, from the opera Rusalka and we hear it sung by the 2022 Operalia competition winner, Juliana Gregorian. Ms. Gregorian is Armenian and holds a master's degree from Yerevan State Conservatory, and she is a member of their Young Artist Opera program. This coming season, she'll make many debuts in multiple opera houses throughout the world, including the Dutch National Opera, Teatro alla Scala, and the Ravenna Festival. I hope you enjoy her singing as much as I do. Thank you so much for joining us, and thanks so much to our guest. I hope everyone has a wonderful week ahead.